This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Glenday, coming to you from Canberra on Ngunnawal Country. Welcome to This Week. Over four and a half years, the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability held hearings and heard some tragic stories from witnesses. I implored the medical team to stop. It was cruel to continue. He had been through enough. That was the moment I had to start justifying my son's right to live and to be treated. Mm -hmm. And they kept judging us based on my decision to give him a chance at life. This is the only opportunity I have to speak in Carl's voice. This is him saying, help me and help keep me safe. This week, its report was released, making 222 recommendations to improve services and the lives of 4.4 million people living with disability in Australia. One key recommendation is the establishment of a federal government portfolio for disability. We campaigned for the Royal Commission for about five years, leading up to the announcement of the Royal Commission in 2019. And it is the culmination of a lot of hopes and desires Mm. for change. Elle Gibbs is the Policy Director with the Disability Advocacy Network Australia. The whole reason we campaigned for a Royal Commission for such a long time was that we wanted to have something to look at the whole systems, but also to have the powers of the Royal Commission to be able to get papers from bureaucrats and open doors and shine a light on the secrets that we needed exposed. And much of that has happened. Can you remind us why the Royal Commission was needed and also what are the sort of things it was looking at? So in 2015, the Australian Senate held an inquiry into the rates of violence against people with disability in what they called institutional settings. So that's disability service providers mostly. Mm. So group homes, day programs, that kind of stuff. Right. And the findings were genuinely shocking. Senators cried when they released their final report that called for the Royal Commission because so many people with disability were being hurt, were dying and were being harmed extraordinarily in these kind of places. Right. And that is what led to the Royal Commission. And then it heard some of these really awful stories. Can you tell us about some of the issues it raised and shone a light on? So one of the first public hearings that the Royal Commission heard was into group homes. So these are places where people with disability, mostly people with an intellectual disability, live. Mm. They often don't get to choose who they live with. They have very little say over what happens in the day. Other people decide when they have dinner, what they have for dinner, when they get up, what they wear, everything like that. Mm. And we know that abuse happens in group homes. So many people with disability gave extraordinarily heartrending evidence about what they experienced in group homes in the past, but also now. Mm. Like, this is not something that happened a long time ago. You may as well have your identity stripped, really. Like, you can't do anything. Like, I can't even go to the bank and, like, ask to withdraw money. You can't do anything. You just stop existing. In some of these places, the um, atmosphere is toxic and people are not... People are not safe at the moment. The Royal Commission has looked at lots of different aspects. So everything from the education system Mm. to child protection to 
the experiences of First Nations people in the prisons and justice system. But they've also held hearings into things like the abuse that people with disability experience in public places. He stared at me, laughed, and he pulled out his phone. And he was obviously taking... And I stood and I just went like that at him. And he put his phone down and he just cacked himself laughing. That's certainly something I know about. I mean, one of the most shocking ones that we heard was one of the last hearings about two young boys in Queensland who had experienced some of the most shocking neglect that I have ever heard about over a 10-year-plus period. Caleb was observed sitting in the overgrown grass at the front yard, eating a large raw dog bone. And every single person who came into contact with them, nothing changed. Mm. They were reported to every single authority but because they were disabled kids, it was thought to be, well, not okay, but understandable. These are the kind of attitudes that the Royal Commission has really explored, this attitudes towards people with disability and what we deserve, and violence is definitely not what we deserve. So now the report has been made public and it's made over 200 recommendations. It looks pretty comprehensive. What's your initial reaction? I think the 222 recommendations and all of their subclauses gives you an idea of the scope of both the extent of violence against us as people with disability, but also that the commissioners have really taken on everything that people with disability have told them and looked across the board. So it hasn't just looked at disability services, but it's really gone to some really interesting overarching recommendations and then some really specific ones about schools and work and a whole lot of other areas. Mm, Okay, so what are the key recommendations in your view? I think one of the biggest ones is their headline is they were calling for a new Disability Rights Act, which I think Mm. is great, that would enshrine the rights that people with disability have and make them kind of across all of the services and systems that governments do. They want to have a new National Disability Commission with a a new co-designed complaints mechanism to fix the Disability Discrimination Act and calling for like a new Minister for Disability Inclusion and a new Department of Disability Equality. So they're the kind of overarching ones at a governance level, and they're asking governments to respond to all the recommendations by the end of March next year. Mm. They've also called for an end to those group homes you talked about as well. So the question now, I guess, is will politicians listen? Will they take on these recommendations and not just say they'll implement them, but actually do it? The majority of the commissioners called for a phasing out of group homes over the next 15 years and a kind of comprehensive addressing of this segregation issue for people with disability. So they also called for uh, a closure of sheltered workshops over the next 10 years and half the commissioners called for a phasing out of special schools Mm. um, with no students remaining in them by 2051, which is a very long runway, um, but it was a clear kind of indication that that has to change. So I think it it shows a very strong direction for governments that this is where the direction that we want to go in, that Mm -hmm. they have to make all of their services accessible and available to people with disability. I mean, we're part of a community. We are, you know, equal. And that that is a core part of eliminating and stopping the violence against us. Have you been disappointed by the media coverage of the Royal Commission? Some Royal Commission's sort of seem to be live streamed constantly. This one, 
I think it's fair to say, has has gone on in the background. Yeah, and it's something that the chair, um, mm. Ronald Sackville, of the commission called out at the final ceremonial hearing. He gave credit to the ABC and to The Guardian and SBS, but other media have pretty much ignored the Royal Commission. I worked to try and raise awareness around the Royal Commission professionally, and it was very challenging to talk to some journalists and encounter some extraordinary attitudes towards people with disability. And there has been this silence about the Royal Commission across the board, not just from the media, but more widely. So civil society hasn't Mm -hmm. really engaged with the Royal Commission, neither has parliaments, neither have governments. It has been this silence about what is happening to us that I have found extremely challenging. Mm. And it is devastating in terms of how we are regarded in the community and how much people with disability are sidelined. We're not seen as equal. Yeah. Does that lack of attention worry you about what it means for the recommendations and what it means for kind of implementing the change that is needed? In part, I think that the recommendations will require change and Mm -hmm. not everybody always likes change, but the community will need to change. A lot of disability services will need to change. Public services will need to change to include us and stop hurting us. But the disability community and disabled people and families, we're a pretty amazing community. And we have fought. We fought for this Royal Commission and we got it. Mm -hmm. We fought for the NDIS. We fought for the Disability Discrimination Act. We fought for lots of things and we've got it. We are a pretty amazing, resilient, powerful community. And we are all determined to see this violence end. This needs to stop. This We cannot be coming back in five, ten years' time to have another inquiry to say, goodness me, there seems to be violence against people with disability. This needs to be a line in the sand for us all to say that now is the time that we make the changes, stops this happening, so that in five or ten years we can look back and go, we did this. We stopped this violence. People with disability are included. Things have changed. L. Gibbs is a policy director with the Disability Advocacy Network Australia. Well, Victoria's Premier Daniel Andrews was a politician who people had fairly strong opinions about. His tough COVID lockdowns triggered anger, protests and conspiracies. He was even dubbed Dictator Dan by some conservative commentators. But he defied and further infuriated his critics by winning a third consecutive Victorian election last year. And then this week, he suddenly stepped down. It's not an easy decision because as much as we've achieved together, there's so much more to do. But... When it's time, it's time. Recently, in talking to my kids and Kath, thoughts of what life will be like after this job have started to creep in. And I've always known that the moment that happens, it's time to go and to give this privilege, this amazing responsibility to someone else. After he resigned, his deputy, Jacinta Allen, was elected to the top job unopposed. It is such a deep honour and privilege to be in the position to be heading to Government House and to be uh, sworn in as Premier of Victoria. And can I say, 
24 years ago, uh, almost to the day when I walked into this place as a much younger woman from regional Victoria, I, I never expected to have this length of service or indeed... She'll reveal her new cabinet next week, so what's she like? How would you describe Jacinta Allen? Uh, someone said to me the other day, she's a bit of a political dag, so she fits that mould of people. She's not as awkward as a John Howard. John Howard was never great socially. She doesn't have quite the verbal dexterity uh, and the killer lines that Daniel Andrews might have. She's smoother than someone like Anthony Albanese in a media Mm. performance. Look, she's got all the weapons, the things that a politician needs, including extensive experience. Raph Epstein is ABC Melbourne's morning radio presenter. Cast your minds back uh, in the distant mists of time. And in 1999, not only did Carlton have a very successful and surprising preliminary final victory against Essendon, which we thought that was the one shock on the day. (laughs) Later that day, Jeff Kennett lost in 99. He lost because he neglected the bush, the regions. And one of the spots they neglected uh, was a Victorian parliamentary seat in Bendigo. And it was won by a 25-year-old Jacinta Allen. She was one of the youngest people to ever go into parliament. And Jacinta Allen's been there since then. She's been in Parliament longer than Dan Andrews. Mm. She is, I mean, depending on how you count it, she's, if not the most experienced female minister in Australian politics, she is definitely one of them. Labor's been in power for all but four years since 1999. And she's been a minister for a ton of those years. And she's been in charge of some of the biggest and most important stuff in Victoria. Mm. She is really close with Dan Andrews. So she's had... Fantastic preparation, but she's got a big test ahead of her. As transitions go, as an outsider, this kind of seemed fairly seamless. How did she get the top job? Because Dan Andrews gave it to her. Right. Uh, (laughs) Simple as that. uh, Pretty much. She saw off some rivals. There are people, uh, there was a former health minister like Jill Hennessy. She's no longer in parliament. There have been others from time to time that people have speculated, okay, when Dan Andrews goes, who gets to take over? Dan Andrews backed her in 100%. I think Jacinta will do a fantastic job. She'll work hard. She's got all the skills and experience she needs. And one thing I know about her, she's focused on the people of Victoria. She was blindsided by the timing of this announcement as well. She was very genuine, I think, when she says right. that. I have, tried, I have played this back uh, a few times. He said, it's, it's time. It's today. I'm, I need, I'm, I'm going. She probably expected yeah. it this year, but probably didn't expect it to be this week. So back to Dan Andrews, an extremely powerful politician in Victoria, and he's pretty influential nationally too. Why did he step down and why now, do you think? I just think he's exhausted. Hmm. Um, I think he's absolutely exhausted. The 120 consecutive press conferences, 120 days during all of the lockdowns. Down from 11.59pm tonight until 11.59pm next Tuesday night. This will be a hard lockdown similar to, in fact, identical to what we did a couple of weeks ago. The intense, sometimes really vile social media and mainstream media pressure that is intense. He also turned all of our lives upside down. We are all scarred by that COVID experience. No one has done as much as fast as him, arguably in Victoria's history. Victoria's the first 
state to give its First Nations people a voice. There's a First Nations Assembly. They're negotiating a treaty. We've got voluntary assisted dying. We've got um, a supervised injection room and another one on the way. So he's done a hell of a lot. Not everyone loves everything he's done. Uh, Final postscript, when Jeff Kennett was around, he instituted a rule that you had to be around uh, for a certain number of days. I think it's 3,000 days. And then you get a statue. He failed to meet his own rules. Dan Andrews has passed that particular landmark. He will get a statue under Jeff Kennett's rules and Jeff Kennett will not. Yes, the statue is one of the more bizarre (laughs) elements of uh, Victorian (laughs) politics, I have to say. I just want to go to his early years in power. I mean, he was a progressive Labor leader. You've ticked off some of the things he did. But during a period that federally was dominated by the federal coalition, what kind of influence did he have early on? You need to keep in mind there's a Yiddish word, schlemiel, uh, which looks like it sounds schlocky, messy, tall, hunched, nerdy, daggy, (laughs) kind of knew who he was as health minister, gets elected leader of the Labor Party after they lose in 2010, the one time the Liberals win in this century. When he becomes leader of the Labor Party, Julia Gillard is still Prime Minister. She has just become Prime Minister. He has been there through six Prime Ministers. So I don't think many, too many people actually expected him to win. As soon as he won, I think people in 2014 people realised he'd been underestimated. Mm -hmm. Uh, People drastically underestimated. It's this bizarre but really important Victorian phenomenon of level crossings, the the heavy rail, suburban rail lines going throughout Melbourne suburbs, and you had to sit and wait Mm. while the boom gates came down to let them go past, promising to remove 50 of them. It changes the way people think about what governments do. Mm. They've improved my local shopping centre. They've given me a better park. They've made my amenity that much better. So when people then accuse the Labor Party of maybe spending too much money, having too much debt, yeah, but hang on, I, c- I can see the benefits of that at the end of my street. Mm. Uh, there is a phrase, he gets stuff done, but it's mm. S-H-I-T, he gets stuff done. How is his stewardship of the pandemic, do you think, going to be remembered on a, on a national level? I am convinced most people in Victoria, their impressions and understanding of Dan Andrews were 100% formed and set in stone by the COVID experience and the overwhelming experience of the sensible centre of Victoria, because the sensible centre always ends up choosing the winner, they were okay with it. Yes, um, mistakes were made. Yes, sometimes they went too far. Of course they did. But most people sat back and went, you know what? I'm glad he was Mm. here. So whether or not that translates to the rest of the country, I don't think there's anyone uh, who's interested in politics who thinks, I don't know what he's about. Uh, When he uses lines like, He's not a leader. He's just a liberal. That is, yeah, you know, he says that about Josh Frydenberg when uh, Frydenberg's treasurer. That gives you an understanding of the bloodthirsty, take no prisoners approach, but it also hides part of why he's so good. It turns the word liberal into something derogatory. And in a state that looks like becoming a one party state, you are just hammering the nail into that coffin. He thinks he stepped up and led when others didn't. That's why he made deals with Gladys Berejiklian and Dominic Perrottet. He thinks that Scott Morrison failed to provide leadership and he stepped into a vacuum. Whether or not they agree with it, I reckon people around the country have a very good sense of that. Just lastly, Raf, uh, Victoria is in quite a bit of debt compared to some of the other states around the nation. What are going to be Jacinda Allen's big challenges as Premier? Yes, Victoria is on track to, we're not there yet, but Victoria's on track to have more debt than New South Wales, Queensland and Tasmania combined. So what Jacinta Allen can do to change that, I don't see much room 
for wiggle room around debt. So that's got to be a question. Debt often constrains what you can actually do. Can I build a new school or hospital? It also, of course, can threaten to frame you politically and electorally. So that's a huge issue. We've got some massive projects like the Suburban Rail Loop and the Northeast Link, which is a big road, and whether or not they can be delivered soon. And then what does Jacinta Allen do on those social issues? Things like a second supervised injecting room. Mm. There's been a lot of controversy around the first one. So those sort of very practical things, how do you spend on the schools? Where do you put the supervised injecting room? How do you frame debt? How do you deal with debt? Can you change it? They will determine her political fate. Raf Epstein is ABC Melbourne's morning radio presenter. Time for the goal line dropout, though. No. Aussie rugby hits rock bottom. Now, you would have no doubt heard that Australia's national rugby team is in trouble. The Wallabies face a humiliating exit from the World Cup in France after an embarrassing 40-6 loss to Wales this week. It's a record loss to Wales. It's a record loss at the World Cup. And for the first time in the history of the tournament, Australia will exit in the pool stages. Coach Eddie Jones came under fire after the game. His team selection was criticised after long-time captain Michael Hooper missed out on the squad sent to France and his commitment to Australia was questioned. Uh, firstly, I'd just like to apologise to all Australian supporters. A lot of people have travelled here. I'm sure a lot of people have stayed up late at night and uh, you know our performance wasn't up to the standard that uh, is required. It's not only the the Wallabies we've got to improve, we've got to improve the whole system of Australian rugby. And and that's not an excuse, but, you know, we've just got to to have a really good look at ourselves and, and see what we've got to do to improve the way we're going about our rugby. What does their disastrous World Cup say about the state of rugby union in Australia? Rugby union in Australia faces competition for talent at almost every point in the development cycle. At the top end, they lose players to Japanese rugby and European rugby now. But at the junior level, there's fierce competition to get those 15, 16-year-olds to commit their first professional contract to rugby instead of going to the NRL, for instance. Dr Hunter Fujak is a lecturer in sport management at Deakin University. The battle for talent really starts from the age of five when all the major sports are trying to get kids to fall in love with their particular sports. Some sports have it easy, like football in Australia with over a million and a half participants, whereas the other codes, you know, the AFL spends nearly $60 million a year on community development and Rugby League Two spends tens of millions of dollars investing in trying to get kids to fall in love by playing their sports at a young age. And just by competition in terms of the financial resources, rugby really struggles to compete with those bigger codes. Was this always the case because when I was growing up, I remember both public and private schools played rugby union. It seems more and more though that uh, rugby is a very private school preoccupation and perhaps only in a couple of states in Australia now. Is that fair? That's probably always been the case. And, you know, we can think about a, you know, a strength and a weakness of being two sides of the same coin. So historically, that private school feeder system has worked really well to develop some of the Wallabies' best talents, if we mm. think all the way back to our John Eels's now, George Gregan's and whatnot. But the, the competition in the Australian sport industry has increased dramatically because there's just simply more financial resources at stake now than there was 20 years ago. So in some ways, it's really just the financial competition that's driven the competition for junior participation as well. Mm. 
So that's the talent side of things, which I think maybe many Australians might be kind of vaguely aware of. But if we go back two decades to the World Cup in Australia in 2003, the Wallabies seemed healthy. They were flush with cash and potential players. What's happened on the business side of things to lead to this spiral downwards? Yeah, so undoubtedly, there's a real juxtaposition to where we are today because 20 years ago, rugby union really entered its golden era. And for a period of time there from 03 to maybe 05, 06, 07, it really looked like there was going to be a renaissance where they might be the biggest or second biggest code in Australia. Hmm. Finishing the 2003 World Cup, there was a $45 million war chest from hosting the World Cup, which was meant to be used to advance the code. And I suppose that hasn't necessarily been spent all that wisely due to some strategic decisions along the way that haven't worked out in rugby's favour. So is that broadcast deals? Is that retention of players, what sort of business decisions were made that were poor ones? Probably the biggest mistake in retrospect is there was probably a period of time where rugby was at its most popular, but its preeminent weekly domestic competition, Super Rugby, stayed behind Foxtel's paywall for its 25 years of that point. And so at some point, probably the administrators needed to be brave and take that onto free-to-air television, because of course, one of the big advantages that the AFL and the NRL has is that it's in it's in the papers, it's on television every single week for 26 to 30 weeks a year. I mean, it really is that cultural prevalence of those big two codes that really really keeps it in the front of mind for everyday fans. And, you know, Super Rugby being on Foxtel and obviously Foxtel being a product that more affluent people historically had, which is their existing market, Mm. simply meant that it was a real struggle for the code to break into the mainstream. Mm. And if you're behind a paywall, I guess that makes it harder to attract than talent. It's a bit of a cycle, isn't it? Uh, Here where I am this morning in Canberra, rugby support seems fairly strong. I mean, Eddie Jones was here not that long ago and commented that at least it gets some coverage in this city. But even here, the Brumbies still struggle to get people to games. It certainly seems like rugby's popularity in terms of spectators has gone down. Yeah, that's right. And this is where we have to remember that sport is still a cultural product. And, you know, there are things that are in fashion and out of fashion. We only had to see how the Mm. Matildas caught fire and became, you know, the centre of the cultural universe in Australia for that brief period of time. And it's fair to say that rugby union has very much fallen out of the cultural zeitgeist over the past 15 years in particular. And we only have to look at a place like Canberra, where the Brumbies are a very successful team on the field. But even going back a few years, uh, they made the finals and their coach came out to say that they were going to lose money because they simply weren't going to draw enough fans at a finals game to be able to actually break even on hosting. So, you know, it's a real dire state of affairs when even your strong established clubs struggle to get people through the gate. Mm. So what's going to happen to the game? It sounds like rugby in Australia is in pretty dire straits. Does it have a future or... Is it now in such a downward spiral that it's destined to become a really kind of niche sport on the fringes? It's one of the real interesting challenges in the Australian sport landscape. You know, we benefit here from a huge array and diversity of sports that seem to be able to exist in equilibrium with each other. And that's certainly not the case if we look at places like India, where there's obviously a dominant sport in cricket um, and dominant sports in the UK, for instance. So we really benefit from having this great variety of sports. But at the same time, what we've seen is that the bigger codes, such as the AFL, are getting bigger and bigger broadcast rights, getting more and more members, more and more attendees. 
And as the bigger sort of sports grow, it's seemingly starting to affect the capacity for those medium-sized sports who are, by comparison, starting to shrink. So where does rugby go from here is a difficult question to answer, but certainly the trajectory they're on will require change. And we've seen sports like the NBL basketball reinvigorate after a period of decline, so it is possible to bounce back. But at the same time, we've also seen sports uh, stay somewhat in a slumber as well. So uh, the future is yet to be told. Dr Hunter Fujak is a sports management lecturer at Deakin University. And that's the episode for this week. You can subscribe by searching for the This Week podcast. It's produced by Nell Whitehead, Laura Corrigan, Anna John and me, James Glenday. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.